guys, just now I got a notice of somebody dropping their key. So if this is yours, come up. If, it is, if nobody comes up, then I'll use it for the church or something. <laughs> I'll put it right here, okay? Just come after the sermon. All right, thanks, Yvonne, for that. Um, so we're going to go through and, and continue in our, in our sermon series in Galatians. But I re- we just read a whole bunch of verses, okay? And it's in your printouts. We're going to focus specifically on verses 11 to 14. And then next week, we're going to do the rest. But it's one kind of chunk of scripture that we can't really separate because it's just, it just makes sense to put it together. So throughout the book of Galatians, as we've already studied chapter 1 and a part of chapter 2, we see that this is a letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of churches in Galatia. And Paul, throughout the first two chapters, has been absolutely resolved to defend the gospel message. He said that we are saved through Christ and Christ alone. And nothing else can save us, nor can it add to our righteousness. And as we go through the book of Galatians, we must not forget that Paul not only defends this doctrine that is very dear to his heart, Paul is also defending a group of people who are very dear to his heart. Remember, these churches were planted by Paul himself. These are the people that Paul once pastored and once swore in his heart to love, serve, sacrifice for, and lead in the faith. Paul loves these people. And we've seen how in chapter 1, Paul is pleading with them that, guys, there is no other gospel. Don't be enslaved to any other gospel. And he speaks against the false gospel of a group called the circumcision group, a group who came into these group of churches and started saying that, no, guys, you're not saved by Christ. You're saved by obeying the Old Testament laws. You're saved by being obedient to what God has given us in the Old Testament, including circumcision. And he asserts that the true gospel is not that. That the true gospel that is preached by all the prophets of the Old Testament, preached by all the apostles of the New Testament, is that we are saved by grace through faith alone and not through our works. And we also see throughout chapters 1 and 2, Paul making a distinction about himself from these other groups. That, that their gospel is false, that I am separating myself from them because what they're doing is enslaving people into the law. And it's not right. And today, interestingly, we'll see again in our passage that Paul, yet once more, separates himself from another group, not the circumcision group, but a group that we call the Jewish Christian group, okay? And this is one of the things that I I bet, as we go through Galatians, you probably read Galatians yourself, you're thinking in your head, I just can't get down with this. I just just can't. Paul is so mean. Why Why does he keep excluding himself from everyone? He's so separatist, and he seems so elitist. Right? I'm, I'm just not that kind of person. I just don't exclude myself from people. I include everyone. Well, first of all, I want to commend that heart. I think it's a very kind and very gentle heart. I think that's good that you want to include everybody and, and be in a community with everyone. But before we go into the sermon, let me convince us of one thing. That every single one of us here are actually very exclusive people. I'm going to do that in two ways. One. We are like Paul. We are exclusive. One, it is simply not true that we don't exclude anyone. We do. I bet we do. I bet that no one in this room would say that I include myself in the community of devil worshipers. I I hope you don't. Right? We we exclude people. We exclude them. Why? Because saying that I'm including myself in them is communicating something you don't want to communicate. Now, you may minister to them, yes, but you would never include yourself as one of them in support of their message. So we all here exclude someone. 
Two, even if you're so committed to be all-inclusive, even if you're so committed to include everyone, even devil worshipers, I'll include devil worshipers because I just want to be all-inclusive, even then you're still being exclusive. How? Because when you promote that we should not be exclusive to anyone, you're excluding a group of people. You're excluding those who are exclusive. You see what I'm saying? By being all-inclusive, you're excluding those who are not inclusive, who are exclusive. So, I'll repeat that again later if, if you want. But so, by choice and by logical necessity, we are all, like Paul, exclusive people. So, the question is not whether we are exclusive or inclusive. We're all exclusive. The question is whether or not our exclusivity is glorifying to God. Whether or not our exclusivity are separating ourselves intentionally, humbly, is done in such a way that frees others from slavery, that loves others, that glorifies God, that protects the gospel, or is it done in such a way that is prideful, self-centered, self-absorbed, and not glorifying to God, and hurting the gospel message? In our passage, we'll see both Peter and Paul separating themselves. But one kind of separation, one kind of exclusivity is done pridefully, selfishly, and the other kind of exclusivity is done humbly, self-sacrificially, godly. All right? We have three points today. One, Peter separates himself to protect his image. Two, Paul separates himself for the love of others. Three, Jesus separates himself to reconcile sinners. All right, let's pray before we start. Father, Lord, help us see your love and um, worship you over even something very strong that we are all so tempted to worship every day. Not ultimately money, not ultimately a big house or a lot of cars or assets or career. Lord, the thing that we often worship over you is ourselves and our image and how people view us. We often sacrifice the gospel message. We sacrifice others to worship the idolatry of self-image. Lord, humble us, help us see how the gospel destroys that, and help us live our lives in such a way that is accord with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, point one, Peter separates himself to protect his image, his self-image. All right, we see this in verse 11, when Paul started this passage by explaining to the Galatian church that he was fighting with Peter. Not fighting, but there's an argument that Paul had with Peter. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas, who is another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Antioch is a place where Paul ministered to in a while, for a while, for a long time. And this place has two different ethnicities in him. There was Jewish Christians and there was Gentile Christians. There's Jewish Christians and there's non-Jewish Christians called Gentile Christians. And they're all mixed up in this place called Antioch. And unfortunately, the Jewish Christians, who Peter is one of them, look down on the non-Jewish Christians, on the Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians said that um, unless the Gentile Christians obey our cultural norms, they are lesser, second-class Christians. They are saying, if you want to get to my level of spirituality, you must obey the Jewish rituals. How do we know that? Because of Galatians chapter 4.10, Paul hints at this and a bunch of other verses, but we'll just talk about this one, Galatians 4.10. Paul says, but, but now that you have come to know God, I think it's in our, it's in our uh, slides if you want to 
go forward. Nope, sorry. Just read it out, Galatians 4.10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Who enslaves you? Whose slaves do you want to be once more? Listen to this. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored to you in vain. Paul's saying is you keep observing these monthly, yearly, annually rituals that Jewish people do, thinking that somehow that makes you better, more righteous Christians. Right? And this cultural norms have slipped into Christianity in that region, and it's making unbiblical distinctions between Christians who are first class and second class. And Peter, a Jewish Christian, fell into this kind of exclusivity. In, Paul, in verse 11, Paul says he stood condemned, which doesn't mean he's not saved. just means that he's in the wrong. He's gravely wrong. What did he do? Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, or the non-Jewish Christians. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, so here the specific Jewish ritual is not the monthly, annually rituals. It's the dietary Jewish laws about what you can or cannot eat. See, back then, Jewish people would say that you can only eat, uh, you can't eat certain meats, or you, you can't eat, you know, medium rare steak because it has blood in them, or you can't, you can't drink wine that wasn't made from a Jewish dude. That's what they're saying, right? You These are some Jewish rituals you have to follow. And Paul separated himself from eating with the Gentiles because the Gentiles did not follow the Jewish ritual dietary laws. What he's saying to the Gentile Christians is this. If you guys want to get at my level, you must follow the Jewish dietary laws of what to eat and what not to eat. Why did Paul do this? Verse 12 says, for before certain men came from James. What does that mean? So we see Paul, before these men coming from James, he was eating the Gentiles, and now when, when they came, he separated himself. So uh, uh, the apostle James, apparently, sent some people to this region called Antioch. James, at the time, was in Jerusalem, so therefore we can assume these people that came to Antioch were Jewish Gentiles, like Peter, like James. These Jewish Gentiles came in there with kind of a superior authority about themselves. They came in there with their chests puffed up and them saying, who are these Gentile Christians? They are not as righteous as us. And Paul, fearing the circumcision party, which is a different party, right? There's a Jewish Christian, there's a circumcision party. We'll explain that later. Fearing the things that the circumcision party fears, things like um, you, have to obey the, you have to obey the law of the Old Testament. He feared all that, and he separated himself because of the Jewish men that came from Jerusalem, saying that I cannot hang out with these people. Because if I do, what is that going to do to my self-image? It's going to make me look like a lesser Christian. It's going to make me look like I'm second-rate from these Gentile Christians. Now, the Jewish Christians were similar with the circumcision group, but they were different. Okay? How do we know this? Because earlier in Galatians chapter 2, we see Paul going to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, to meet with James, to meet with John, and he brought Titus with him. And Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. Let's read what happened in, in this story. Okay? Um, uh, 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 Galatians 2.1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. So what happened when Titus met these people in Jerusalem, these Jews in Jerusalem, these Christian Jews in Jerusalem? Galatians 2.3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Okay, so the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who came to Antioch met Titus, who was an uncircumcised Gentile, and did not force Titus to be circumcised. How do we know that Peter and John and James and all those people were there as well? Go to Galatians 2.9. And when James and Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars. So those three names are mentioned among the people in Jerusalem who Paul and Titus came to, and they did not force Titus to be circumcised. So we know that they weren't as bad as a circumcision group, right? The circumcision group would say that you're saved by obeying the Old Testament laws. The Jewish Christian says, no, 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 you're saved by Christ alone. But there's like levels of Christianity. The more obedient you are to the law, the higher Christian level you become. You see the difference? It's, it's little, but there's a difference. You're not saved by obedience. You're saved by Christ, yes, which all of us here would say, hopefully, you're saved by faith through grace alone. But your obedience somehow makes you better. Okay? Now, Peter, due to fear and self-righteousness, a desire to manage his image... He separated himself from the Gentile Christians. But that's not all he did. Look at verse 14. He, he went worse. How does Paul continue to rebuke Peter? Paul said, If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can he force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So let me explain that. What happened here? Not only was Peter putting standards on these Gentile Christians that they have to follow these things so, so that they're good enough to hang out with Peter, but all the while he's putting these standards on them, he himself, were, were, he didn't obey those standards. What does it mean? Peter, you're living like a Gentile. That means Peter was not observing the Jewish dietary laws, but he made these people observe them because Peter thought he's already Jewish anyways. And by virtue of birth, he was already better than these people. But these people who, who, who is not of the same ethnicity as I am must do things that I would do to earn their place at my table. That is vile. That is sickening. How can somebody who believes in the gospel fall into that? We all do, if we are to be honest. Now, this isn't an exact picture of what happened at the time or between Peter and the Jewish Christians, but I want us to imagine this. I want us to imagine an English-speaking church in Jakarta filled with many people from a similar ethnicity. These people have their own rituals. They talk a certain way. They dress a certain way. They eat certain things in certain places. It's okay. It's good for us to be self-critical. It's healthy. Now, these Christians in this story, okay, it's not it's this story. These Christians, they separate themselves with other Christians who are not like them because they feel unless others talk the way they talk, dress the way they dress, and eat the things they eat at the places that they eat them, they are merely second-rate Christians. And they exclude themselves in such a way that implies, I will not hang out with you, I will not give you gospel fellowship, unless you talk, dress, and eat like me. All the while, they do not put these requirements on themselves. Because they think that by virtue of their birth, they're automatically first-rate Christians. How vile is that? If that kind of conduct does not destroy the gospel, I don't know what does. And may God protect every one of us here from ever becoming such conceited, narcissistic, self-absorbed Christians. See, this kind of life, this kind of 
conduct, Paul says in verse 14, look at it with me, is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Notice one thing. The gospel is not only something you must proclaim with your words. It's something that we proclaim with our lives. Their lives, their conduct, is not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is why Christians' life, alongside their words, are all a testimony to what Christ has done for us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me ask us this. Let me just drive it in a little bit more. How many true Christians or friends that we are experiencing true gospel fellowship with who are outside of our financial comfort zone? How many true Christian friends that we're experiencing true gospel fellowship with that are outside of our ethnicity. Whatever your race may be, whatever financial state you may be in, I'm not, I'm not just putting this to one specific ethnicity, one specific financial state. No, no, no. Pride is for everyone. Every financial, whatever financial state, whatever ethnicity you are pride, we're all susceptible to that. And now, of course, I'm not saying it's wrong to have deep gospel fellowship with those of the same ethnicity and those of the same financial standing. That's great. That's amazing. You should continue that. And I know that there's complications in this culture, right? That unfortunately, there's a norm here that you're, if you're of a certain ethnicity, then you are a certain religion. And it's uncomfortable. Let's just say it, okay? Here it's known that if you're Western or Chinese, then you're probably either Christian or Buddhist. If you're my skin Indonesian, then you're probably of another religion. That's, that's the norm. That's how kind of things are separated here. So I understand there are difficulties of having gospel fellowship with those that are outside of our uh, ethnicity and, and all that. I, I see there are circumstances that makes it difficult. But if we don't have even one person, not one, that we are in deep gospel fellowship with, Christian gospel fellowship with, who are out of our financial standing, who are out of our ethnicity, I just want to ask us, myself, first and foremost, it might could be possibly due of a Peter-like attitude of superiority and elitism. And, and I'm, I'm brave enough to say that here, and I think all of us should ask ourselves that question unless someone here claims to be more spiritually mature than the Apostle Peter himself. Peter fell into it. I can fall into it. We can fall into it. And there are shreds of that in our lives that causes us to exclude ourselves, separate ourselves in a way that's elitist, prideful, and destroys the gospel message. So, we have seen the bad type of exclusivity, the selfish, prideful exclusivity, the one that destroys the gospel message. But now we'll see that there is a good kind of exclusivity. There's a good kind of separating of self that is God-glorifying, selfless, other-centered, and gospel-preserving. Let's go to our second point. Where Peter separates himself to manage his own image, Paul separates himself to protect the gospel. Paul, like Peter, is also exclusive. We see through chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Galatians, he entirely separates himself from the circumcision group. He says, I'm, I'm not with them. I'm not promoting what they're promoting. That is bad. You're not saved by your own obedience to the law. You're saved by Christ. But now again, we see here that he's excluding himself not only to the circumcision group, but to the Jewish Christians. 
Now, he doesn't do it as harshly because he realizes these people are still Christians. He doesn't call them false brothers like he calls the circumcision group. But he still, although he doesn't fully step away from them, he kind of just a little bit does step away from them. Probably more than that, but probably bigger step than that. Right? He's saying that what they're preaching and their way of life is not what I want to promote. That is not the gospel. Why does he do this? Galatians chapter 2, verse 5 says, so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you. Paul's separation was driven by a desire to protect the gospel and preserve the Christian freedom in Christ. Now, there's two things I want us to note in how Paul separates himself. One, he does not separate himself from non-believers. He does not separate himself from non-Christians. He loves them. He ministers the gospel to them. We see all throughout the book of Galatians that Paul was, a, was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a minister to those who do not yet know Christ. The separation is not done to those who aren't yet in Christ. We pray for them. We share the gospel to them. But he specifically disassociates himself to people who claim to be Christians, who claim to have the gospel message, yet preach a message and put others into the slavery of the law. Okay, we've noted earlier that the Jewish Christians is not as bad as a circumcision group. All right, that the Jewish Christians would say, you're, you're saved by faith. Circumcision group would say, you're saved by obedience. Jewish Christians would never say that. You're saved by faith. But your obedience kind of makes you better, right? Let's call the circumcision group hard legalists. These are legalists, people who think that le the, legal, the legal bounding of the law saves them, hard legalists. Let's call the Jewish Christians soft legalists. They're still believers. They're still in Christ. God has had mercy on them as he, he has on us. Um, because a lot of us here, including myself, are soft legalists. These are people who are Christians, but still think that obedience to the law makes us more righteous. Now, hard legalists are easier to spot. They clearly preach a gospel and live a life that is completely contrary to the gospel. They're saying things like, you can be saved by buying this anointed oil. That's just not even close to what's in scripture. That's hard legalism. You're saved by doing something. Soft legalists are those who would say, no, no, you're saved by Christ, but you're more loved, you're more righteous, you're, you're, you're a higher rate Christian, the more obedient you are to the law. No such thing as either. Or the Bible says we shouldn't submit to either. Your value, your righteousness, how loved you are by God is not determined by your obedience. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. I get it. Our, our ethnicity doesn't separate us anymore. Our financial standings don't separate us anymore. But doesn't our obedience kind of separate us a little bit? Can't we say that God puts those who are more obedient on a higher spiritual plane than other Christians who aren't obedient? Is it not okay to say that God loves the mature Christian more than he loves the immature Christian? Never. Never say that. Never say that. Don't get me wrong. Obedience to God's commandments is great. A desire to live righteously is awesome. A love to Pursue spiritual disciplines and pursue spiritual maturity is of great value. But those things do not and cannot make God love you more. 
You're not more acceptable or lovable to him because of what you've done. We see this all throughout the book of Romans, that despite of our maturity level, we are equally loved children of God. Romans 8.15 have all, we have all received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If Tatiana and I have another child after Elena, let's say for the sake of illustration when Elena's 10. It's going to be earlier. For the sake of illustration, let's say when Elena's 10, we have a second child. And our second child, obviously, when he or she is born, will be much less mature than Elena, know much less about us compared to Elena, not be as smart as Elena, well, of course, still a baby. But our less mature baby second child will be loved by us in the same way and intensity as we love Elena. That child's maturity level does not determine our love for them. He's my child or she's my child. Friends, God does not love pastors more than he loves Christians who are not pastors. God does not love community group leaders more than he loves community group members. God does not love seminarians more than he loves those who aren't seminarians. He probably has a hard time loving seminarians more than he does those who didn't go to seminary. That was being facetious. He loves us the same. And I said this in my first sermon, and I'll say it again. In Christ, our disobedience cannot make him love us less and our obedience cannot make him love us more. In Christ, we are secure, perfect, full, complete. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Okay, let's continue in this passage. So Paul, in contrast to Peter, in order to protect the gospel message, he separates himself from these Jewish Christians. Not as much as he did with the circumcised, circumcision group, but, but he does. He wants to free people from spiritual abuse, which is what happens when you forget the gospel. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face. See, Paul distinguishes himself. Verse 14, he does this publicly. I said to Peter, Cephas, before them all. He does this publicly, why? Who is all them, by the way? It's the rest of the Jewish Christians. He does it publicly, why? Because Peter is a Christian leader. What he teaches are being heard by others, and his life, his life is being followed by others. Look at verse 13. There's a proof. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, Christian leaders, their actions, what they say, must be put in accountability. Is it in line with the gospel message? And, and Paul spoke up strongly about this, and he distincted himself from Peter and from the Jewish Christians. Why? Because if he doesn't, the leader's actions and words will slowly drain the gospel from the Christian faith, and it'll enslave us back into slavery. And Christianity without the gospel, Christianity without the gospel, is no Christianity at all. Let this never be, Paul says. Even though Peter is influential, Rather, precisely because he is influential, I will risk my neck. I will separate myself from them publicly, speak up for the sake of gospel and the others. Think about it. What, what, kind, of, what kind of risk do you think Paul is taking here? He's, he's relatively a newcomer in the faith. Peter's been there for a long time. Right? Galatians 2.2 says he's very, Peter is very influential. Galatians 2.9 says he's a pillar of the faith. 
Galatians 2.13 that says that he's followed by many, even by leaders, even by Christian leaders at the time. Oh, and by the way, he walked and lived with Jesus for three years of his life. Peter's a big deal. He's not a small fish. What is Paul risking by doing what he did? He's risking his reputation. He's risking his own life, maybe. He's risking his ministry. How successful his ministry is, as humans often see success in ministry. He risked all of that. He said, for the gospel message, for freeing Christians from slavery, I will risk my reputation, my image, and even, possibly, my life. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. Well, here's your proof. He said, no. It's scary. It's risky. People will talk bad about me, will talk about me behind my back. My ministry might hurt because of it but I will not dilute the gospel message just for a second because I love the gospel, I love Jesus, and I love others more than I love my image. Peter, James, Barnabas, other big shots from Jerusalem could have crushed him, but he counted the gospel message and the people in Antioch and in Galatia more valuable to him than his image and even life. See, this reminds me of one of the Christian heroes in the Reformation. You guys might have heard about him. His name's Martin Luther. He lived in a day and age where the church at large has fallen into legalism, both hard legalism and soft legalism. That both through their, the church's words and practice, they're promoting something that is contra-gospel. They were saying things like, in order to be saved, you must pay penance. You must pay money. This will somehow save you. Or they were saying things like, to be saved, you must confess your sins to a human priest. Luther said, no such thing. He separated himself from these people because it destroys the gospel and enslaves people. It's not where the Bible says we can find forgiveness. The gospel says we're saved through Christ and Christ alone. No amount of money, no amount of tears nor prayers can wash us from our sins. But the blood of Christ alone is what does that. And the conduct of the church at the time was not in accordance with the gospel. So, so what he did was he nailed the document to the, to the uh, church's door. And it's called 95 Theses. There's 95 points in the, in the document. And it's saying that I don't agree with this. This is not gospel. This is, this is hard legalism. This is soft legalism, hard legalism. And by doing so, he knows that it was going to ruin his reputation and even his life. Because of that, the church got really, really mad. And they called Luther uh, to a courtroom church courtroom because the church in the state was mixed in the, at the time and they called him to, to, to a judicial courtroom and they told him uh, Luther unless you submit to what we're doing paying penance you know uh, human priests can forgive you absolutely of your sins unless you do these things that is contrary that you what you think the gospel is we're gonna kill you it was legal back then we're gonna kill you and the story is Martin Luther was so courageous he said no I will not that's not what happened he was actually pretty scared this is what's often missing in the story. He's, he got a little scared, and he said, oh, gosh, kill me? Okay, give me one night. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, all right, the stakes are really high. Let me just make sure. If I'm going to die, I, I better be dying for the right thing. <laughs> he, he was scared. So he said, okay, guys, just give me one night. Let me read the Bible again, 
and in the morning I'll come back to you and I'll tell you what my position is. So that night, the, the courtroom let him go, and he read two books in the Bible. The first book is the book, is the book of Romans. And guess what the second book is? Galatians. He read Romans, he read Galatians. The next day, he came back to the courtroom, he was summoned again, and he said, Peter, if you don't renounce the gospel you preach, we will kill you. And at this point is when he said his famous line, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Not for a second do we dilute the gospel message. Peter, Luther, loved it more than his very, their very lives, their very image. Now, we've seen last two weeks ago, um, through Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, or three weeks ago, there is much room for disagreement in the Christian faith. There is. I'm not saying these things are important, and I encourage you guys to have a biblically informed view on these things, but there are room for disagreement, like our views on baptism, our views on church structure, on music, on the end times. Let me repeat again, these are very important things. I'm not saying they're not important, and our church holds fast as an institution to our convictions on these doctrines. And to be deacon or an elder at the church, you must um, hold on to, to, to the doctrines that we believe in those things. But you don't have to agree to those things to be members of the church. If you've noticed in the membership vows earlier, there was no questions about your views on baptism. Right? There was no questions about your views on church structure or end times or music. Because we realize we cannot, we cannot refrain and separate ourselves in such a way that refuses others from gospel fellowship who are in Christ who disagree on some of these things. But when it comes to the gospel, we have no room for disagreement. It is a precious central doctrine that God himself became man and died on a cross for us for the sake of our freedom and his glory. In him, we are no longer primarily identified by if we're Jewish or Greek or Chinese or American or Indonesian or poor or rich, or mature in the faith, or immature in the faith, we are in him one. And we look at each other and we say, I'm a saved sinner just like you. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, let's get to our last point. Friends, this is a difficult task to be called to do. How can we, like Peter and Luther, have such a love for others, have such selflessness and passion of preserving the gospel message that it leads us to minister the gospel to those who don't know Christ yet? It leads us to fellowship with Christians who are outside of our financial and ethical comfort zone, yet at the same time, appropriately, wisely, humbly separate ourselves from institutions or those who claim to be Christians and who may be Christians but yet through word and practice enslave other Christians and take away gospel freedom from them. How do we do this? How do we find the power and, and, the, and the motivation to do this? Let's look at our last point, and let's see how Paul gets it. Jesus separated himself to reconcile sinners. This will be a short point. We've all fallen short on this, haven't we? We've all loved our image and people's opinions about us more than we love others and the gospel message. And because of this worship of self and other people and our reputation, we have all fallen into a Peter-esque worship of self and reputation at the expense of others and the gospel. 
Where is the answer then? Where can we find forgiveness of this self-worship? And where can we find the strength to love and selflessly conduct our, conduct our lives in such a way that is in accord with the gospel at whatever cost? Well, this is where we find the strength. Look at verse 20. This is where Paul finds the strength. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, these are not words of poetry. Paul truly meant it. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live for the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul finds the strength to do this because of the gospel. Paul had the courage to associate with certain people and be separated from others because he realized that Jesus, in order to associate himself with Paul, was separated from someone very dear to him. And for Paul, he sacrificed not only his reputation, but his life. On the cross, do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, for you who are theologically inclined, I know we cannot say that Jesus was completely separated from the Father because he's quoting Psalm 22 and is a victory psalm, yada, yada, I know. But regardless, there was some kind of separation between the Father and the Son at this moment. No matter how long the separation was or how bad it was, don't underestimate the agony of it. Think about it. The perfect, eternal, triune God of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is in perfect communion and, and perfect flawless fellowship for eternity without separation as one God, subjected himself to separation. And not only that, a separation that involved the humiliation and agonies of a cross. A separation that caused the perfect Son to cry out to his perfect Heavenly Father who has loved him before the foundations of the earth, why have you forsaken me? And this wasn't a cry of confusion. Jesus wasn't confused. Why did you do it? No, he quoted Psalm 22, a victory psalm. Jesus knew why he did it, but it was a cry to inform the bystanders of what exactly was happening. It was a separation cry that preached the gospel message that the eternal Father agonizingly separated himself from and crushed his perfect son so that he could make self-worshipping, sinful people like us, his children for eternity. Paul realized the only reason he can be included by Jesus in an eternal fellowship is because Jesus not only risked his reputation and life, but gave it. If he could just have Paul, if he could just have you and I. This gospel message came with such power to Paul that, it said, I, that he said, I have been crucified with Christ. So help me God. Amen. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the, the next passage. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto tightly. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who was equal with God let that go to have fellowship with us. How much money must we have to think 
that we are ever above that, that we would exclude others from gospel fellowship from us when the Son of God himself let his riches go and became poor so that he can eternally have gospel fellowship with you. Let it never be. The gospel is both the power and motivation that can help us include ourselves with others and wisely, humbly separate ourselves from others in such a way that preserves the gospel message. And it frees others from the enhancing bondage of legalism because he first has saved us from our bondage and our sin. I'm going to read uh, uh, a, piece of the, a piece of this hymn, and then I invite the music team to come up, and we'll, we'll close in song. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Pray with me. Lord, it is with trembling hearts we come to you after hearing such a passage, knowing that we have all failed in this so drastically, that we have all worshipped our self-image and reputation above loving and persevering your gospel. And we have, like Paul, not appropriately spoken up and, and separated ourselves, again, wisely, humbly separating ourselves from those who might confuse the gospel message and put others into slavery and the bondage of law. Lord, help us experience and, 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 and know your grace and mercy more. As we continue to fail to do this for the rest of our lives, know that you have freed us and love us still yet. You love us not because of how little we worship ourselves. You love us of the, because of the cross, because you love us and we are forever indebted. Father, indeed our chains are gone. I've been set free. And Lord, as we sing this last song, let us remember of this love and let it drive us to live lives in such a way that is in accord with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.